welcome to the sermon cast from King Road Church. If you'd like to connect with us or browse resources, please go to kingroad.ca and click New Here. It's our desire that God uses this message to bring you closer to Him. I'm here today to continue your series in 1 Timothy chapter 3. So if you have your Bible, you'll want to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. And as you do that, I'm sure Paul has already told you uh, as you began this series, but 1 Timothy is a book written by the Apostle Paul to Timothy, whom Paul views kind of as a spiritual son. And Paul has left Timothy in Ephesus to oversee this church, to help establish this church and get it, get it going. And now Paul intends to return to Ephesus, our text will tell us, uh, and to Timothy, but in, clay, in case his travel plans are delayed, which, if you know anything about Paul, is very regular. He is often delayed. He says, I want to come, but I don't come. And uh, so Paul is writing to Timothy with this same message. I want to come, but if the Lord has other plans, here is what is important to know. And so 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 14, we will read the text in full, just three verses. Paul to Timothy, as inspired by the Holy Spirit, said, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, Vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This is God's word for us this morning. Before we dive into it, would we pause? Would you pause with me for a word of prayer? Father, we praise you for the word which you have inspired by your spirit and passed down from generation to generation that we might know you and love you more. As we turn to your text today, Father, we pray, would you by your spirit be opening our eyes and warming our hearts to know you and love you more, to see and savor the glory of Christ a little more in our hearts. And would the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be honoring and pleasing to you Oh God, our rock and our redeemer, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. How we behave in different situations and circumstances often has something to do with what we were taught was appropriate to do in different situations and circumstances. For example, my son, as mentioned, he's 14 years old. He doesn't quite understand all of the social approved ways to act. And so as he's getting older, you know, at this point we can't do much, but we try in little ways to encourage him to live and live in ways that we think are appropriate. 14 months. months. We're trying. It's not very good, but we're trying. As he grows and as he gets older, as he has more comprehension, uh, his understanding will be great, greater at least. Uh, And we're working on teaching him things like not hitting himself in the head with toys, not throwing his toys into the fireplace, not pulling lamps off of tables, 
As things get going, as children begin to grow, you need to teach them the appropriate way to behave. Paul has been, is writing to Timothy because this is a young church that Timothy is now pastoring, and they're in new waters. They're trying to figure out how ought we behave as a church. That is the purpose for Paul's letter in 1 Timothy. He's saying, I write these things to you so that you might know how to behave. This is, in some ways, the central text of this letter where Paul is pulling it back and he's telling them this is the purpose for it all. As parents give instruction and teaching to their children in how to behave, likewise teachers or anyone in any manner of authority, so too scripture gives out clear indications of what good and proper behavior is within the household of God. Paul tells us in these verses that this is the reason he writes. Again, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and the first part of 15 Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Paul is concerned with the behavior of the church. At this point in the letter of 1 Timothy, this might not be a surprise to you. You've gone through three almost full chapters as we finish up the third, and yet it is perhaps helpfully clarifying. In the chapters and verses leading up to this statement, Paul has clarified that the church's behavior ought to be characterized by not teaching falsely and getting absorbed in mindless debates. That's 1 Timothy chapter 1. Praying for all people, including those in authority whom we might wish were removed from authority. That's 1 Timothy chapter 2. Men praying without anger, but instead with raised hands. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Women dressing with modesty so as not to draw attention to their wealth or learning, and learning quietly and in submission. Again, that's 1 Timothy chapter 2. Elders living above reproach, and according to the many character traits listed, that's 1 Timothy chapter 3. Deacons, living in a dignified manner and according to the many character traits listed, again, is 1 Timothy chapter 3. Behavior is what Paul has been driving at. So the question is, why? Why does it matter how we behave in the church? Let's read the rest of 1 Timothy chapter 3 again, beginning in verse 15. Paul says, If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. Paul tells us that if uh, it is important for the church to be behaving appropriately, according to the ways that he tells us, because the church is the household of God, 
It is the pillar and buttress of the truth, and because it confesses the mystery of godliness. The church is the household of God, a pillar and buttress of the truth that confesses the mystery of godliness. And as we look at our text, we will look at these three things, each in turn. The first, then, is that the church is the household of God. That seems pretty plainly to come right out of the text in 1 Timothy 15, again, 3 verse 15. You may know how, to, how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. Here's the point. The church, that is the people of God, are adopted into a family, the family of God, and indwelled by the Holy Spirit because Jesus is alive. Now, there's a lot to unpack in a simple phrase, but from the beginning of the narrative of Scripture, we see this theme come out. God is calling a people to himself. From the very beginning, God calls a people to himself and he's creating them into a community. Adam, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and on and on through the generations. In the Old Testament, one household becomes a nation. In the New Testament, many nations become one household. Paul, likewise, in Ephesians 1 says... In love, God predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. There are many clauses in that sentence, but he has predestined us for adoption as sons, as sons and daughters, as children of God. He has predestined us. And a little later on in Ephesians chapter 2, he says, You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Likewise, in Romans 8, Paul says, All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. By whom we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified in him, with him. This is of great importance. This is why the song, Joyful, Joyful, We Adore Thee, we can say, God our Father, Christ our Brother. Because God has been calling a people to himself. He has been forming a household, a family, adopted brothers and sisters. Through Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, we are now united we have become one people, one household, the people of God, our Father, through Christ, our brother, by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Through the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, God is forming not a nation, but a household, 
a family, brothers and sisters with one another and with Christ through adoption. So the church is the household of God, we read, because God calls us out of darkness and into his glorious light. But the church is also the household of God because as he forms us into a household, he sends his spirit to dwell within us. Thus, we become the household of God. Just as God was forming a nation from the households, uh, from a household in the Old Testament, so too God was devising a means to dwell amidst a people. That was always the plan. Genesis 1, God creates humanity and he dwells with them in the garden. Genesis 3, humanity rebels and God no longer dwells with the people. And nevertheless, throughout the, the storyline of the Old Testament, what we see is God continually showing grace and mercy and dwelling amidst an unclean people. He sets up a tabernacle, a tent in the wilderness, and he dwells in the midst of his people. He has Solomon, the son of David, set up a temple, and his spirit descends and his glory fills, and God dwells in the midst of his people. In the New Testament, God still dwells in the midst of his people, but he doesn't dwell in the midst of his people in a physical building. He dwells in the midst of his people in the midst of his people, in the middle of his people. His spirit comes down, Father and Son send together the Holy Spirit who dwells in our hearts, and we become the household of God. What? an amazingly precious truth and reality from Scripture. He doesn't merely dwell in the middle of his people. He isn't in the midst of the people. He is in the middle of the person and the people as they gather. As 1 Corinthians 6 says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Here, Paul confirms what he's also said in 1 Timothy, the assembly of God are the household of God due to the indwelling of God. So, Paul says, glorify God in your body. Bringing this back to our text in 1 Timothy then, one reason we ought to be concerned about behaving in the household of God is that we might glorify God with the way in which we live and behave. Drawn from the nations, we have been formed into the house, the church. As the church, we house the Holy Spirit within us, becoming the house. Therefore, Paul says, go about your business decently and in order that God might be glorified in his house, by his house, through his house, unto and out into the rest of the world. So the first, the people of God, the church is the household of the living God. The second is the church is a pillar and the buttress of truth. This is again, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, the final section of this one verse. If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. 
the church, that household of God, upholds the truth of God for all to see. Imagine for a moment with me the large temples that you may have seen photos of in ancient Greece. I was on a plane on Friday. I didn't have time to find a photo. I'm sorry, otherwise I would have. But imagine these, these grand temples. If you have seen any sort of photos of ancient, ancient Greece, I'm sure you can think of something like the Temple of Artemis was in Ephesus or the Parthenon in Athens. These gigantic structures, huge pillars, massive foundations. 2,000 years later, wars have gone by, weather and all sorts of natural disasters have gone through, and yet the pillars and foundation still stands. Now, in, the, in this case, the rest of the temple has fallen. The rest of the temple has not upheld, but the pillars and foundations are still there and magnificent, overwhelming in their size. Like the pillars and foundations of the Parthenon, the church is a pillar and foundation or buttress of the truth, upholding that which Scripture so clearly teaches. Now, Ephesus was a place drawn in, filled with all sorts of false teaching. Like I said, there was this massive temple to Artemis, and people would go around chanting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The temple was one of the seven wonders in the ancient world. People from all over would come and see and worship at this temple of Artemis. As time moves on, the church is established in Ephesus and false teaching begins to seep in as the world comes together. We see the same sort of story playing out in our world today. Except false teaching maybe isn't as easy to run out of town as it would have been that, at that time point. In these days, false teaching seeps in through our phones and through our iPads, through our laptops and through our televisions and yes in many places, even in through our pulpits. Nevertheless, Paul, as inspired by the Holy Spirit, tells us that the church is a pillar and buttress foundation of the truth. A true church, one which is behaving as it ought to behave, guards the truth from falsity. It upholds the truth even when it's hard and is a foundation of the truth built upon the truth and no other. A church which has been overrun by false teaching is no true church at all. The pillar and foundation have been found wanting. Instead, the true church, the house of God, upholds and affirms the truth of Scripture, come what may. The true church does not shy away from that which our world might say is foolish, but upholds as true, Things like that Paul addresses in this very letter. Sexual differentiation, marital complementarity, male leadership in the home and in the church. According to the words of Paul to Timothy, just in these very letters, these things our world finds outlandish and unfounded. And yet Paul says in scripture that this is true and this is how we ought to behave and order our lives. The church is committed to the truth. The church is founded upon the truth and the church upholds the truth. But upholding the word of God in our life and in our doctrine, in our work and in our deeds, 
may not be easy, nevertheless, it is essential. Willingness to stand by the truth of Scripture and adhere to the faith once delivered to the saints is one of the signs that one is truly part of the household of God, the church. A willingness to uphold. But it's not just the culturally sensitive issues and topics that are important. Even more foundational than all is the truth, the truth which Paul here refers to as the mystery of godliness, which the church confesses. The third point is that the church confesses the mystery of godliness. Great indeed, Paul says again in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. The mystery of godliness is the gospel of Jesus Christ itself, which the household of God, the church, upholds as true above all else. Our most foundational thing is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. We confess this mystery. And perhaps this would be a good point to clarify that the mystery here refers to that which is known only to God. Mystery back then wasn't, you know, this big surprising thing like we would have it today, but it was, had to do with God's revelation. There are things that only God knows, and yet this is a mystery which has been revealed to us. It is a mystery which has been made known, a mystery of godliness seen in the life and death of Jesus Christ. Great indeed is this mystery, Paul says, echoing the, the language and words that would be chanted around Artemis the Great. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians, the average Ephesian dweller might believe. The Ephesian men and women were pleased to worship the false god goddess, except the church gives exclusive fealty and worship to the triune God of grace, the triune God of the scriptures, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, revealed most fully to us magnif magnificently in what Paul terms the mystery of godliness. And Paul here divulges that mystery for us in six lines, which seem to be couplets disclosing the mystery both in physical and spiritual realities. So we will look at these six lines briefly in turn. The first two connect, the, the second two connect, and the last two connect as well. Paul says he was manifested in the flesh. That's the first one. The eternal son of God, the second member of the Trinity, very God of very God, the Nicene Creed confesses, sent by the father, born of the Virgin Mary, was revealed and made known to us as a real flesh and blood human. In the flesh, he lived a life in perfect obedience to the law of God, a life we could never live. He died a death in perfect obedience on the cross, a death we deserved but didn't undergo. He purchased our salvation through the shedding of his blood. 
transferred his righteousness to all who profess belief upon him. Bearing the sins of all who believe, he was buried for three days and rose again, appearing to more than 500 people over 40 days in 40 different appearances. Jesus Christ, Savior and Lord, was revealed in the flesh. God made him known to us in real, historically verifiable, factual time and history. God was made known in Christ most fully, most clearly. He was vindicated by the Spirit. The Spirit vindicated, that is, the Spirit justified that the one who has come is in fact truly God, though in the flesh. Through the miraculous signs and wonders that he did that accompanied his enfleshment, and despite the frail humanity that Jesus Christ had, he was no less divine in his incarnate state. He was no less the God-man while he was a human. Just as now he is a human in the heavens and he is no less God while he is there. As Paul says in Philippians 2, Christ took the form of a servant, though was at no point any less God. The Spirit vindicated, justified, proved, gave evidence to the fact that Jesus himself was who he said he was, God in the flesh. Jesus is God. Jesus is historically made made known to the people. He is revealed to us. He is made known to us now through history in the scriptures, which God has preserved for us. And again, he is vindicated and justified by the spirit who motivates us and moves us and makes our affections grow for Jesus. He was seen by the angels Miracle of miracles, the incarnation of God, the eternal, the eternal Godhead. The second member revealed the mystery of God even unto God's special spiritual attendance. The angels. The angels proclaimed Christ. The angels honored Christ. The angels announced Christ. The angels served Christ. Jesus was made manifest not only to men, not only to humanity, not only to the physical world, but to the spiritual reality that is in existence as well. He was proclaimed among the nations. He was revealed not only to the, nation, to the angels, but also to the nations, not only to the Jews, but also to the Gentile. The marvel of Christ is shown in the expansive nature of the gospel call. From one family out unto the nations, Jews and Gentiles alike are beckoned to come to Christ. From east to west, from north to south, from slums to gated communities, Christ is proclaimed freely, openly. All are welcome in the household of God and all are beckoned to come to Jesus. He is proclaimed among the nations. And Paul says he was believed on in the world. Will not everyone across the world may come to faith? 
In fact, many who proclaim the faith to the nations fail to see any results of their preaching at all. And nevertheless, the household of God is made up of members from every tribe and nation and tongue united together through the bond of peace bought through the blood of Christ on the cross. It's why days like today when you pray for the persecuted church, there is such an undergirding to that. It's the fact that God has people, he has sheep in in many pastures that are yet to come. And yet the gospel must go forward. The gospel must be proclaimed because God is calling and drawing a people to himself from all over the world. From all of the nations, God is forming a household for himself, the church. And he was taken up in glory. When it's all said and done, in the final act of his glorious first coming, Christ ascended into the heavens and took his seat at the right hand of God the Father, where he is currently actively ruling the world. He is ruling the affairs of the world to come to his preordained ends through his foreordained means, incarnation, justification, annunciation, proclamation, convocation, glorification, the mystery of godliness. It's all about Jesus. The life and works of Jesus Christ are distilled in this passage for us. And Paul says that this truth, this reality is the thing which undergirds all other godly living. In summary form, apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ, there is no foundation for good reason, for good behavior, or for godly living. Apart from Jesus Christ... Good living is helpless. It has no saving power. It does nothing except deceive us into thinking that we might be good people. But that's the lie itself. We are not good. We could not save ourselves. We needed Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Even if we do what might be described as good deeds... Detached from the gospel of Jesus Christ, the best thing we can do, the best thing good deeds can do, is earn us damnation. And summing up everything that has come before, Paul here states that the fundamental undergirding reality for godliness comes not because we want to be good people, but as a result of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no godliness apart from gospeliness. The godliness to which Paul is calling the church, the orderly behavior which Paul says is befitting of the household of the living God, is a hands-to-the-plow practical living out of the good news of Jesus Christ. While many may be prone to an intellectual faith that's detached from practical outworkings. We might assent to the truth. We might profess the faith. But we might show up to church on a Sunday morning. We might agree with the content of a sermon. This faith detached from real world practicality is meaningless. Just as 
Just as godliness is rooted in gospeliness, gospeliness is displayed in godliness. Paul says in Romans 4 that our faith apart from works, that our faith is evidenced by our works. James says that our faith without works is dead. Paul here reminds us of this same idea, but in the inverse, good living apart from Christ is of no eternal help or significance. Well, we might think that if we serve a little more in the church, volunteer a little more time at the soup kitchen, raise a little more money for overseas missions endeavors or whatever it is, the mentality is the same. If only I do a little more, then God will owe it to me. The reality is that if we focus on doing if we prioritize our work instead of emphasizing the work of Christ, which has been done and accomplished on the cross on our behalf, then we will find ourselves in tough waters when the end comes. Every work apart from Christ is entirely useless at balancing our sin scale. There is nothing that we can do. So if you are not yet a Christian who is here, I urge you, stop striving. Stop striving to earn or prove your goodness. It will never work. Our works will always fail and our assumed goodness will always be flawed. Believe upon Christ today. Today is the day of salvation. Come to Christ. Receive the finished work of Jesus on the cross Trust in the one who did obey in perfect obedience. The one who, who did obey in perfect submission to the will of God so that we might be saved apart from our works. Because we will never be saved by good works of ours, but by the good works of Jesus Christ alone, given to all who believe upon him for salvation. And dear Christian, rest in the finished work of Christ on the cross. He alone has accomplished salvation. It's a sure thing for those who are in Christ, so rest, trust, believe, hope, and put your focus solely on Jesus. He is the only one who could bring us to the end. He is the only one who can tell us that we are in God's family. No amount of striving or effort can ever accomplish what Christ alone could. So rest in the godliness of God, and only then will our own godliness follow. Would you pray with me? Father, we praise you for Jesus Christ, our Savior. We know that by his blood we have been welcomed into the household of God, as, as members of the church, we are called to be pillars and buttresses of the truth and to live our lives in godliness. And yet we know that we fail and we fall and we do not live the way we ought to live. So Father, would you reorient us? Would you help us to fix our eyes on Jesus and rest in the godliness of God that our godliness might follow likewise? Would you bless us and keep us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. You can find us on social media at King Road Church. Have a great week.